0: Hello and welcome to the Health Education England's podcast series Supporting You to Support Others on the topic of social isolation and loneliness. This is episode two titled Supporting Others where we're going to be exploring in more depth how social isolation and loneliness can be treated both in your personal and working life. My name is Holly Potten and today I am joined by Dr Simon Ofer, a GP who specialises in mental health and Gemma Freerite, a senior social prescribing link worker. Thank you both for being on the podcast today and to discuss such an important topic. So to start us off, I was hoping that you could both, in your own words, tell us what social isolation and loneliness is to you.
1: So I I think social isolation is uh, living, uh, not necessarily on your own, but living a, a a life whereby you don't interact with people. So you may be like in a crowded room and still be lonely. And it's important to realize that people, even in a shared house, might be very lonely because they're not interacting properly with other people. So it's a a lack of of person to person interaction, I would would, uh, say about that. And that then leads to loneliness uh, from there. Now, that's not to say that everyone has to do that, But it's the desire to have that one-to-one interaction and then not having it makes you lonely. Some people don't particularly want to have interaction and that's fine. But if you do want it and you don't get it, it makes you feel lonely. And um, that has a number of sequelae, which we can go into later.
2: Yeah, I mean, everyone's interpretation of loneliness and socialisation is subjective. Um, Like Simon said, you can be... Round people, but not connected. You know, so many people we work with might have family or friends, but for whatever reason, they can't talk to them about things that really matter to them, and that just makes them feel isolated, um, and then leads to further issues. So, you know, it, it's it's individuals, isn't it? And how they feel about it. You know, like Simon said, some people I work with might say they're lonely and isolated, but actually, that's how they like life. They don't want to interact with anyone, so. It varies, isn't it? it's like everything else, isn't it? We're individuals and our perceptions of things vary. Fantastic, thank you both so much. And so, why do you
0: think it's important to target social isolation and loneliness?
1: Well, social isolation in itself is a risk factor for um, multiple, uh, mainly mental health uh, issues, um, which uh, c- can be caused by that. And um, so in itself, it can be extremely bad for you, particularly as you get older as well. Um, you can, uh, it can cause all sorts of uh, mental health problems. It can also um, cause you to sort of not really be... Um, it actually makes you a bit confused because you know ha- have no real interaction with the out- outside world. So I've seen older people actually get a bit confused about what day it is, etc., just because they're not really meeting with people. And actually, we're social beings, and so if we, if we don't have those interactions, I think that it can really affect our mental health in, in many ways. And that there was some research that said that social isolation was as bad for old people as smoking 15 packs a day in terms of the health effects. Uh, and so it does have real physical problems associated with it. Uh, and uh, I do think, as well, um, it's increasing in our society. We're getting much more sort of atomized society. Uh, a lot of us communicate only by social media. And I don't think social media replaces that face-to-face um, human relations um, at all, and in fact can make you even more anxious, I think, as well.
2: Yeah, um, I'd agree with Simon about social media. For some people it is great, but for others we are more and more distant as technology kind of um, evolves. And it is having those human interactions. I think as well, targeting it, because I think socialising is a skill. If you don't do it, you lose it. I think we saw that a lot during COVID, that if people didn't interact, they kind of lost that skill and shied away from it. So targeting um, and putting, you know, focusing on the loneliness and isolation Um You know, it helps people, having other people, builds their resilience. If you're on your own with your own thoughts and no one to talk to, your resilience to dealing with things, I find, lowers for people. And they've got no distractions either. And they focus on things and it's just detrimental to their well-being in every aspect. And Jemmy,
0: you mentioned there about COVID-19 and the pandemic. So have you both noticed an increase in your patients experiencing these signs or feelings of loneliness and social isolation since the pandemic?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, we've always um, had quite a lot because we focus on loneliness and isolation. But I think more so as well, we see more young people probably coming through to the service for isolation and loneliness than we probably did prior to COVID Um, but also obviously services have disappeared um, in that time for a number of reasons that might have addressed or helped um, in some way with loneliness and isolation like face-to-face befriending and things like that. Um, Those kind of opportunities more have disappeared, yes some have sprung up, it's fluid like everything else Um, but you know like home visiting befriending services and things like that. aren't available as much as they were and it's just grown and like i say i think socializing skills so for a lot of people being locked away for the best part of two years especially those with long-term health conditions who were then afraid to go back out in the world has had a huge impact
1: yeah no i agree with that and i think it's, in, it's it's interesting with younger people with mental health because there's definitely a massive increase in all sorts of Mental health problems with young people in terms of like eating disorders, anxiety, you know, uh, autism type uh, problems, and neurodiversity. And uh, the only thing that really um, the the, uh, pandemic did was make people isolated. They could communicate, but they couldn't communicate face to face. And I I think that uh, predominantly that's how the pandemic affected mental health. I think it was through social isolation. There was also a certain loss of certainty about you know, what life is and how free we could be, and you suddenly realise, oh, you know, there's opportunities where we, we maybe can't be free, and that was quite scary for people. But that freedom really involved seeing other people, and that's what we've lost. Um, it wasn't necessarily a freedom to go outside or anything. It was a freedom to actually meet people that we lost. So I think that had, has had a really profound effect on certainly younger people's mental health. And what was also interesting is that I think younger people clearly desire and and have a lot more social interaction. Older people probably don't so much. And I think people made an effort in the pandemic to at least talk to them on Zoom and and that type of thing, which was actually helped um, some older people be less isolated. So there has been some benefits, but I think for young people, it's been pretty much universally bad. And that is probably blamed on social isolation.
0: Simon you briefly touched on earlier about the long-term risks of experiencing this so how can this cause strain to our primary and secondary care services if we don't treat social isolation and loneliness as soon as we can?
1: Um, Well I think it it, it, well if you if you get someone who's socially isolated they're they've got less support in the community um, to to help them through both physical and mental health challenges. So what then happens is, and what we've noticed, so that if you're very socially isolated and you get a new symptom, uh, you've got no support in the community to phone people up about. So that tends to come either to the GP or they call an ambulance and then that takes them to hospital. So it makes you physically less resilient. Uh, A lot of the health advice that we all get, actually, is from our partners or from our fathers or mothers or children or whatever, because we ask people about our symptoms. Now, if you're totally socially isolated, you know, if you're feeling you've got an itchy ear or something, you would ask someone about that and that you would then have a dialogue about that and they would give you some advice quite often. That totally goes. That's something called lay referral systems and they're quite important in terms of use of health service. So people also, so, so they would more likely to, to come to the health service with perhaps a minor symptom, And they're also more fearful uh, because uh, their isolation doesn't allow them to discuss their fears and anxieties, so they tend to grow more. So people who experience certain symptoms suddenly panic and they get increased rates of anxiety, and that usually means that they use the health service more. So um, there there is quite a lot of evidence that social isolation does use more resources in the health service, and that actually it's practical and um, economic to, to... sort of treat it, if you like, if you want to call it it a a treatment, with with, um, social prescribing and that type of thing. So um, it's really important to realise it's not just the mental health thing. It's about being embedded in your community and being able to get support from that community, I would say.
0: Absolutely. And Gemma, did you have anything to add to that?
2: I think, you know, I've noticed um, when I speak to people, and like we said, coming out of COVID and the long-term effects, um, a lot of people because of loneliness and isolation, ate more, drank more, (laughs) smoked more, because there was nothing to do. So it's had a real knock-on effect on their physical health and then trying to get the support to get back to where they used to be. So many people I speak to said, well, I lost weight before, and then just, you know, before lockdown, I got to where I wanted to be, and now I've got nothing else to do. So they're starting again, and I think it's trying to find that motivation as well. And I think loneliness and isolation affects motivation for making those changes
1: yeah no i totally agree with that i think it does and it affects your so as you get less motivated you feel you have less ability so your self-esteem reduces as well and that's a key component of all mental health if you don't feel you can fix something then you generally won't be able to fix it i think so it's uh it's about that type of thing as well um so yeah no i think you're right as well i hadn't really thought of that, but in terms of uh, people did drink more, they tended to smoke more didn't they, as well in social isolation, and um, uh, and they tended to put on weight, and as I said, there was a massive, like a four-fold increase in eating disorders, which seems sort of weird when you come to think of it, but actually that's associated with being very inward-looking and, and thinking of yourself, rather than outward-looking and thinking about others and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, there, there's a lot of physical health problems that pop social isolation through the pandemic I would
0: agree. Thank you both that's that's really interesting I didn't know about that Um, and so do you have any tips on how someone can stay connected with other people when they might be experiencing loneliness and or social isolation? uh,
2: There's tips but then it's having the confidence and self-esteem to do them sometimes when people When someone, you know, for me or you, we might have days where we're feeling lonely or isolated and need that bit of connection and we might pick up the phone or arrange to see friends or people we care about because we're realising we're losing those connections. But for people who are really lonely and isolated, they might not think anyone wants to hear from them. They might have people around them, but actually the confidence might be so low, they think, why would they want to speak to me? Um, So, you know, it is about picking up the phone, getting involved in groups, um, doing things you enjoy, um, you know, and talking to people about how you feel and sharing and not comparing it to how others feel because, like I said, it's subjective. But sometimes it's easier said than done because it's getting over those barriers and that's quite often what we have to deal with is kind of looking at people's confidence and self-esteem to then get them to take those steps um, to address it so it depends on where someone is in that loneliness and isolation journey really um it really varies
1: yeah i think that's true Jamie. and i think also um the more lonely you get the more difficult it becomes to socialize so you get uh, you uh, as you said earlier jamie you forget the skills involved in socialization and they're they're very you know, they're, they're they're skills that we practice all the time. If we stop practicing them, you start feeling shy, you start being hesitant and and nervous uh, with other people. So, uh, what I've found in in the surgery actually is that quite often. So I've done quite a lot of work with social prescribing and also with you know um, using artists in our surgery as well. Uh, and people actually one of the one of the benefits of social prescribing is that if a healthcare worker says you should do this people are more likely to give it a go and then they sort of break that silence if you like that that self uh, self-isolation uh what they do and then they they get going in a supported environment with someone like Gemma for example and then they can they can gradually rebuild their confidence but and and one of the powers of being a health worker is people tend to trust you and believe you so you can use that to do something which is really good for them which they probably wouldn't do on their own because they feel too nervous about it so we must use that um sort of function that we have earned for better or worse really but people tend to believe what we say so um, let's use it for good and get people to really <clears throat> you know try and get out and meet people and they need support as well when they first do it you can't just throw them into a room of strangers and go go on get on with it you have to sort of nurse them in or some people call it hand-holding, which I've never terribly liked as an expression, but it's a, accompanying them and supporting them while they do that. And then I'm sure Gemma's found this as well. Sometimes they sort of take off and they don't need you anymore. And, you know, they, and then they start sharing lifts to the art class or sharing lifts to you know, go, on, or go on a walk together. And, and then they start picking people up. And so their social circle gradually increases. Um, the more you can do it but you have to get them started and that getting them started involves a bit of coaxing and a bit of support actually doesn't it Um, all the way along
2: yeah a a big a big part of it can be reassurance that it is okay and also I find part of that reassurance is a lot of people feel they're the only ones who feel like this that they're the only people who aren't connected and they're confident they again they don't want they don't think people want to speak to them. So it, it's reassuring them about that and not being alone and then going into groups that are about addressing that. They, it doesn't usually take long for them to talk to someone and be like, oh, well, I feel like that too, um, you know, and then that starts to put them at ease. But it is and it's I know the words used a lot, but it's that person centred approach because Everyone we support is different. Some people might just need a bit of information and reassurance and they can go on their own, whereas others we might have to meet them there, walk through the door because they're really anxious of everyone looking at them. Um, you know, for some people, it might just be going for a walk <laughs> it's to deal with their isolation and loneliness. They haven't walked out the door on their own because they're scared that people will look at them. So, you know, we do care and support plans to try and put those steps in place and build it up with them. You know, it's not an instant fix. It's a gradual process for some people um, and the roots building up the confidence along the way.
0: Fantastic. Thank you both so much. And how can you get to that point where you've spotted the signs of loneliness and social isolation in someone and not necessarily just as a patient in any person that you see? How can you spot the signs of this, that they're going through this in other people? And what kind of impact? I know we've touched on it already but what kind of impact has this on somebody's mental and physical health of feeling like this
1: yeah so I think I mean the way you can spot it, I mean there's two different things there. there's you know in, in normal society and your friends etc I think with friends and things that they just sort of stop coming out with you and they've always got an excuse not to come out or uh, and you you know you so you invite them to the pub or something and they, they they're, they're too busy but, and you go, well, what are you actually doing? And they go, oh, I'm watching a TV program. So they have a lot of defences in place, because basically what happens is that they start feeling anxious in in company, uh, and that's usually the start of, of that sort of isolated thing. So, so we can just, we can we can spot that in friends, but you know, you need to have friends to be able to spot it as, su- as such. So it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies in a way. As a as a doctor, what I find is that. Um, often people actually present with mental health symptoms and you then start talking to them about their lives. And one of the things that you're meant to always find out as a doctor is, you know, what do you do with your life? Uh, So it's called the psychosocial part of of people's, um, you know, presentation, if you like. And some people go out to work and that's, they socialise at work. Some people have a whole group of friends, but it's worth, I, I always ask them, can you speak to anyone about your stress? And if they sort of go, well, no, uh, there's no one really I speak to, that means they're socially isolated because to, to, to have a proper social interaction, you need to be able to uh, able to talk about, you know, anxiety that you feel and that sort of thing. Otherwise, it's too superficial. So if, if people don't have that that type of connection with someone, then I think that you can then start saying that they might be socially isolated and, and uh, then you can then... Uh, you know, suggest social prescribing link worker, or you can, you know, other things which are available to us. So I I would say that was the thing. And and you need to sometimes directly ask about it as well. It's not enough to hope that someone's going to say, actually, I'm a bit lonely, because very few people do that. So we have to all go into that psychosocial part of people's lives, I would say. Yeah, I'd agree.
2: And You know, we say, obviously, within the roles, but when you're out, um, and I think probably notice this more now than ever, if you're in a shopping queue, it's making time for people, isn't it? Like if someone starts talking to you, um, quite often that person, you know, some people are just talkers, but some people are just trying to make a connection because that's the only opportunity they get. So it's looking for those kind of signs. Or if you're, you might, it might be a colleague or someone you don't really know that well who's making a lot of conversation you know and trying to keep you there and keep you going you know that might be an indication that they are struggling with isolation and loneliness
1: yeah i agree and actually the other thing is in our communities in our street often you know or vaguely know people who live three doors down and and uh, sometimes they do withdraw themselves, you know, and sometimes I think we need to go and knock on their door and just say, you're right? you know, and th- they'll be a bit resistant to you, but at least we can sort of, sort of help them to do it. And um, even if you don't, you know, don't feel that friendly towards them, it can be something that you can do and make it a sort of more compassionate community that you live in. And certainly that happened in the pandemic, weirdly. Actually, people started going, How is Mrs. So and so going to get her shopping from Sainsbury? So we all knocked on everyone else's doors. Are you all right? You know, and it was actually a, a, it kept, you know, having said it, caused a few problems for young people. It was quite sort of galvanizing to communities, and um, I think it flushed out a few lonely people and actually helped them to a degree. Um, so we can carry on doing that, and that involves just doing a little bit from ourselves. It's a bit uncomfortable because we, we very rarely just. Try and push ourselves into someone else's life, I think. But just knocking on doors a good idea, I
0: think. Thank you both so much. So, Simon, you already mentioned what you would do as a GP if you saw it in a consultation. So, Gemma, I was wondering, as a social prescriber, what steps can you take if you see that a patient is feeling this way?
2: Um, I mean, like Simon said, one of the questions we always ask is kind of who have you got around to support you? You know, because um, we do deal with a lot of wider issues um and that that might be affecting people and then having a knock-on effect on their health so we'll always discuss who have you got around you who you support networks you know if you've got family friends people you can talk to um and that can open up conversations but then we also use the ons for well-being um list where we score people directly around isolation and loneliness as well um And actually, I do find that quite a lot of people open up when we go into that. When you're looking at a scoring system, um, it can be quite difficult for people to then think where they are on that scale. But then also, it's a great way, as you work with someone, to then reflect on the progress they're making because they might also not be able to recognise their achievements when you're supporting them um, to get out. So it is a good way then to use to reflect um, those scorings. Um, But I mean for us it's just listening to people as a service and taking the time and not being the ones that do all the talking you know it's just a few questions open questions to then get someone to open up and if you make someone feel comfortable and build a rapport not everyone obviously um but most of the time that'll get people start talking to you um and then we can kind of look at what their priorities are what their interests are um you know it's we're there to empower them to make the decisions of how they want to address it. We can present options and it's not for us to let someone know what we think's best for them. They can then pick through what will help them and kind of the path they want to take to get there. And whether they're ready to take it as well.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Gemma. Um, and now a question for both of you. What kind of further care is there available for patients beyond a GP or a social prescriber that you might be able to refer them to, or they might just be able to find help for themselves?
1: It's probably better if Gemma explains this. I bet you know a lot more about this,
2: Gemma, than I do, actually. I mean, obviously, it's going to depend on the area a little bit, where you work and kind of what services are funded because, you know, it can be vastly different. Like, I cover a couple of different boroughs and I find services very much vary because one's quite um, rural. So there's less services um, potentially for people out there and it's smaller services um, within the community. So, you know, there's... In most areas, there's community groups at community centres or... Um, Any other libraries quite often have things as well um, available to people that might help with loneliness and isolation. So there's those options for people. I mean, I've found most boroughs um, and areas now have a website where you can find all the local community activities and groups. Um, You know, a big part of what we do is help people find those, but people might want to find them on their own as well because a lot of people don't know what their interests are, so might just want to have a look. Um, so it's, they can go online and look at community groups. I think, you know, more and more we're seeing rolled out, um, especially when I work with um, older people. We're going more and more online to find information and deal with things. So you're getting quite a lot of projects that might go out and help people get online. And that starts to help with the isolation and loneliness because they can start looking at things, or well, they might be housebound and unable to get out. So it gives them a connection to the world um there's organizations that target isolation and loneliness nationally you've got befriending services such as Silverline. um I think it's just you know getting to know your local community social media is a big thing Um meet up for young people we suggest quite a lot of the time um as a good app to find people um and volunteering opportunities as well can be a really good way to get people out um so there's a lot you know and you've got a lot of other organizations um that can support people um you know obviously then there's mental further mental health support they might need because it might not just be isolation and loneliness they might might need support from multiple agencies to start addressing but you need to address all elements really um in their own time
1: yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and and some people with depression actually do withdraw and become socially isolated after being depressed. So it can be a kind of chicken and egg really, what what actually starts it. You're absolutely right. And the, the, the other thing I've, I've noticed recently is that District Council actually has quite a lot of facility for people, which is usually free uh, to get onto, isn't it? And uh, so we have that. And actually, our uh, well, I didn't realise our local um, uh, further education college actually runs loads of sort of courses that are free as well and get, allows people to get together so you have to get to know your local community don't you and know what's available um, we've got this great scheme in our village where people go walking um, you know those sort of green walks and stuff and that's really popular uh, with some people and I'd really reiterate Gemma what you said about volunteering because a lot of these people don't consider themselves to be ill and they don't want to be treated as being ill. So if you give them a chance to help other people, that helps to sort of lift them. And that's really, it's really powerful volunteering, I think. Uh, and you can certainly make it easy for them to volunteer, can't you? You can sort of push them in the right direction, etc. So uh, yeah, good points, Gemma.
2: Yeah, I think with the volunteering, like since COVID, because people suddenly weren't working and were on furlough or reduced hours. So like in our area, people were going out getting medication, getting people shopping who weren't able to get it, and suddenly had all this time. And then they go back to life and working, but actually still want to do little elements. So there's more micro-volunteering opportunities where you don't have to do a big commitment, but you can just pick it when you have time, um, and that can
0: really help people. Fantastic. Thank you both. And now to just slowly start wrapping up the podcast, I was hoping that you could both provide us with, again, some top tips that can help other healthcare professionals to help spot the signs of loneliness and social isolation in their own patients.
1: I, I, my, my feeling is that that, um, uh, that people tend to come to their, their, um, their doctors, sometimes with symptoms, which um, and, and it's what's called in, in, in medical plants we call it the hidden agenda people that come in with say a sore throat but actually their main problem is they're feeling really lonely actually and it's quite it's important that we all sort of try and explore that side of people when they come in and the, one of the problems with being really busy like we are with uh, in the health service at the moment is you sort of deal with the presenting problem and then you go right off you go and you don't give people time so I think the most important thing is is to be a good listener and an and active listener and give people time to, because if you give people enough time, they'll probably tell you about stuff. And the problem is, you know, if they don't, then uh, if you don't give them time, they won't actually let you know sort of what's going on. So uh, um, so I think that's really important. But what do you think, Gemma?
2: Yeah, I think just asking how are you, because <laughs> sometimes you can be so busy, um, and that's in all aspects of life. We can be so busy that you don't, ask people how are you Um, and making eye contact and just kind of building a little bit of rapport it's about just making people feel comfortable so they kind of know it's a safe space to be able to disclose how they're feeling so how can
0: one make sure that through tools like making every contact count, um, something that HEE has been creating, how can you have those impactful conversations, like regarding social isolation and loneliness, and make sure that you get through to these people?
1: Um, well, my feeling is that you just have to be aware of it and have it as one of your, you know. So we usually talk to people in a certain formatic way, um, believe it or not, even though it can seem Celtic. So you have to just build that into what you
0: ask everyone fantastic well thank you both so much that does bring us to the end of this episode Um, thank you again to both Gemma and Simon for speaking with us today on a topic that is so important to raise awareness of this is the final episode in our mini-series if you would like to learn more about the topic of loneliness and social isolation there is further training materials available on our website I hope this episode has been beneficial to you a listener. And as always, thank you for listening to Health Education England's podcast series, supporting you to support others.